The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. How are you doing? I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his patient, understanding friend, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 103 of The Big Picture for the week beginning April 17. And coming up on today's show... The Night Manager books in some spies on the small screen that you should see. Plus, controversy alert, Jesus, Satan and the Holocaust feature prominently in two new dramas, Last Days in the Desert and Denial. Whoa, Jesus, Jesus, Satan and the Holocaust are all coming up on this Easter Monday edition sounding, of The Big Picture. Sounding a tad serious, isn't it? But don't worry, there'll be some fun in there somewhere. I'll say. Uh, but what won't be here again, as was the case last week, is Sam Robinson. Sam Robinson, who usually steers this good ship, Big Picture, is still away on holidays. Currently Mark. lazing around on a beach somewhere. Like eating chocolate eggs or something. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, Sam, I hope, hope it rains on him. Hope it <laughs> I was going to say, I hope he's having a good time. But oh, sure. yeah, that too. Yeah. All right, Mark, let's uh, begin by talking about some stuff that's happening on the big screens around the place. Opening this coming Thursday, I'm sure you'll be aware that Going in Style is coming to cinemas. This is a remake of a 1979 movie about three old timers, some codgers, who decide to rob a bank. You know, for good reasons. Cause, good you know, codgers, by the way. Good that's codgers. Not, that's not ageism on our part. No. We're just saying... They're, nice do, they're doing it for good reasons because, you know, banks are evil and stuff and they're shutting down companies and, you know, they want to take what's theirs. It's, it's going to start, it does start, Alan Arkin, Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman going in style. We'll be talking about that on the show next week. And, Mark, I was, I usually talk about the big screen at this point, but I'm going to diverge and I don't normally do this, but I really want to because I saw such a great movie the other day on the streaming st- service Stan and I'm not endorsing that you necessarily go out and get the streaming service. But if you want to see this movie that I watched the other day, you might want to. It's called Marty. It's the Best Picture winner from 1954. Stars a great actor, Ernest Borgnine, who also won the Best Actor Oscar that year. The film is about lonely people and them being real people too, who have real needs and vulnerabilities and hurts and things they're trying to get over. It also takes into account the selfishness of family and friends around those people. Marty was such a fantastic piece of work. I basically just wanted to commandeer the start of the big picture (laughs) and say, do whatever you can to see the 1954 Best Picture winner, Marty. It instantly dropped into my what top 10 or top 20 films on the first watch I would happily go and watch it I might just go and watch it now so it's, like, it's, it's even worth a trial sign up for Stan oh man Marty <laughs> is so good well I've got some good news for you because something else that will be making your TV future brighter oh great I'm going to watch Marty again it's a new TV series episode one of which starts on the ABC this Sunday April 23 yes of course I'm talking about Hoovians oh Mark Hoovians the series. Oh, okay. Mark. This Rove McManus and his team of superfans will dissect, delve into, and delight in the world of Doctor Who each week. That's right. In case you don't know what Whovians meant, because so many of us don't really care about Doctor Who, but Whovians refers to the hardcore, doesn't it, Mark? It does. As well as unpacking the latest episodes, these guys are going to analyze, critique, and unravel the mysteries of the globally renowned series Doctor Who. They're probably going to even bend the whole time continuum to do so. I'm going to go back and watch Marty. What else is happening on the small screen? Okay, well, something more along your line. An idiot abroad. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I thought you were going to make a cheap shot at Sam Robinson, but have a go at me instead. (laughs) Okay. Episode one of series three began on the ABC last Tuesday. Now, you might not know about this. It's a British travel documentary series comedy based, uh, created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant based around their friend Carl Pilkington. Uh, And now this time they're teaming up uh, his friend Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis is um, a miniature actor I'm not sure what the politically correct way of referring to diminutive diminutive dwarf, dwarf. Oh, is, anyway he's, he's a, a nice short guy statured man. a short statured man with a large heart um, is accompanying Carl Pilkington around the world on the Marco Polo journey so which uh, Marco Polo took from Europe to China 800 years ago uh, and they're going to find out that Carl doesn't adapt well to other cultures like they have in two previous series so that's fun if you like that sort of stuff or laughing at other people Wow, okay. If that's your thing, there you go. If that's your thing, idiot abroad. Uh, We've got some entertainment news we're about to announce before we get onto our first review for this week, The Night Manager, which is on small screens around the place. In some entertainment news, Mark, a decade after An Inconvenient Truth, that documentary that former Vice President Al Gore was behind that basically brought thrust climate change into the hearts of popular culture, 
There is now an Inconvenient sequel, 10 years after the event of An Inconvenient Truth. This time around, Al Gore is continuing his fight. He's traveling the world to train up an army of climate champions and trying to get them to influence international climate policy. I guess what will be interesting... In, I was going to say, doesn't that sound like more of the same? Well, that's what I say. It'd be interesting that 10 years after to discover how much is still the same and how viewers feel about that. An Inconvenient sequel is coming soon. Okay, well, here's news on the entertainment front. Dumbo, do you remember that cartoon that Disney I did do. years ago? The ostracized baby circus elephant with the extraordinary large ears. It's now being remade by our favourite eccentric, quirky director, Tim Burton. Of course it is, though. Isn't Disney just remaking its own back catalogue systematically year by year? They are, but are they rolling the dice with Tim Burton? Okay, this was a much-loved family film. Okay, now this live-action remake of the animated Disney classic is trumpeting some pretty big names, Eva Green from Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Danny DeVito's in it, Colin Farrell, uh, Michael Keaton is also in negotiation to play the villain who acquires the baby elephant in order to exploit him and his mother. But here's my fear. Tim Burton, this was a family film. We might end up with more gruesome than we feel might be necessary. We'll see what happens with Dumbo. Mate, before we get on to The Night Manager, which I'm pretty keen to talk about, I believe you have a true or false fact for us. That's right. In a short while, we'll be turning our normal What Your Kids Are Watching segment on its head for the holidays and offering big picture parents something to share together with the Billy Lid, well, the Billy Lid snooze in bed. The Billy so, Lids? or the, the kids? Yes, I you see, it's a little did. bit of Australian rhyming slang for you. Ah. Stay tuned for The Night Manager, a TV series based on the novel by the master spy thriller Jean Lacar. Now, Lacar is like science fiction writer Philip K. Dick or horror writer Stephen King, pretty much anything they write gets turned into a film eventually, okay? Lacar books have become some of the most memorable spy thrillers of all time. Now, I'd just like to test your idea of what is a Lacar thriller, okay? okay. So, which of these spy films is not a John Lacar novel? Right. Which of these is not a John Lacar novel? The Constant Gardener, brilliant film. Enigma, The Tailor of Panama, or The Russia House. Remember Sean Connery? I was, so, really, I was really hoping one of the Twilight books would be on that list because that would be just an instant <laughs> no. There we go. That was not John McCart, or was it? But no, which of those, The Constant Gardener, Enigma, The Tailor of Panama, or The Russia House was not a John McCart novel? Okay, we'll, we'll find, find out. After this. Okay. Usually at this point in the show, we let you know what your kids are watching. But as it's Easter Monday night and an end of the long weekend, here's one for the parents. So for what your parents are watching tonight... The Night Manager, a British spy series about being bad to do good. Richard Roper is selling arms in the heart of Cairo, in the middle of the Arab Spring. I want to put you inside his operation. Oh, very good to see you, Mr. Roper. I'm the Night Manager. You'll be in so deep, you're worried that you'll never get out. Thieving, narcotics, murder. Boy's got talent. Jonathan is going to be staying for a while. Welcome to the family. Okay, is this a spy show? Mark. It's got John Le Carr. Yeah, bit yes and no. Um, so we, we was focusing on this lead character of Jonathan Pine, played by Tom Hiddleston, who I think is best known to viewers for his work in the Avengers series. He was also in the recent Kong film. Jonathan Pine is the night manager. He's working in a variety of hotels around the world. He comes into contact with this really rich dude called Richard Roper, played by Hugh Laurie. And then from House. From House, of House fame. And then across the course of the uh, episodes of the night manager, the six episodes of the show, Jonathan Pine gets um, embroiled in the world of Richard Roper and uh, to put it politely Richard Roper is a bit of a dodgy dude and he's doing a lot of arms deals on the side of the charity work and philanthropy work that he puts up as like a public face behind the scenes some British spy agencies are using Jonathan Pine as their operative inside Richard Roper's operations to try to work out what's going on so yeah it is a spy show but it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a spy show, even though it's set in exotic locations, got really, um, really, really handsome people in it, and fancy British accents all the time. It like it's it's spy work, but often it's more uh, focused on these characters and the way the characters interact, as opposed to the, the the funky ways that you can go about espionaging on each other. Yeah. Okay. So we're not talking about so much like telescopic sights and and secret microphones. No, it's, it's less of the Mission Impossible style, less of even the James Bond gadgets and gizmos. This is more of well, what you'd expect from John Le Carre. Like, and was he behind Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? Is that, yeah. That yeah. John Le Carre. So yeah. thoughtful, typical thriller. Yes. 
Yeah, okay. Well, why have you found this a good couple watch? Yeah, my I'm wa- assuming you and your wife have been watching yeah, this. Yeah, my wife Amy and I have been um, hitting the show pretty hard. This is on SBS On Demand. We've been watching it uh, back at our leisure. Although this is the sort of show that I'd be watching. It's it's on Wednesday nights at 8.30. Um, I'd be watching it weekly, I think, if, if my uh, calendar would allow me to do so because it's that kind of show that's worth like waiting for and checking out when it, when it comes along. It's almost like the TV version of a page turner, you know, a book that you really want to sink your teeth into and you just, it's an easy read it's um there's loads of things going for it everything from the performances to the the scripting to the the way the story unfolds etc etc that makes you just want to keep going along it's and a lot of it's nothing new like we've seen all these kind of things before but but it's so excellently but it's so excellently excellently done not too deep yet i'm only about halfway through the series i've still got a little bit further to go but it definitely kickstarts conversations between Amy and I, particularly about where Jonathan Pine is at, this character Tom Hiddleston is playing, and what he's doing to get things done. That in itself can lend, lead to a lot of great conversations, particularly around our house. And But otherwise, it's just a great show that Amy and I are both really enjoying. There's nothing like that between a couple, right, isn't it? The idea, the question, would you do that? You know, like so you're talking after a television program. What about this idea of Jonathan Pine being embedded in this evil organization? That, yeah, you know, that's ropers? that's the that's the that's the big talking point. And there's so many shows that that dive into this. Um, I think, and and there's so many characters around that are you know kind of morally compromised, but often for good reasons. Breaking Bad comes to mind. For example, on this occasion, though, Jonathan Pine, Tom Hiddleston's character, is better intended than what you get in, say, a show like Breaking Bad, where he is trying to bring down Richard Roper, who is just, you know, like, unashamedly a bad guy. But it calls to mind, um, like, teachings of, of Jesus about... Um, uh, being, you know, being aware of what you get involved with and being aware of how deep the kind of the badness can run in you, like a little taste of badness can really, really, really spread. Or other teachings in the New Testament about fleeing from temptation. So rather than thinking you can do a little bit of bad to do a lot of good, a lot of teaching in the New Testament is actually just don't go near the bad. Uh, like, a little leaven leavens the whole bunch. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And so flee from temptation as opposed to going any further. And you see the consequences upon Jonathan Pine in this series. So they're really worth talking about, about like ever is it worth, I think a lot of us will be encouraged or enticed to think, yeah, actually doing something a little bit dodgy, a little bit bad, a little bit suspect is okay. Or even bearing with evil. That's I can, right. I can bear with this. That's right. The night manager raised all that kind of things. But again, it comes up like real hard against teachings in the, in the New Testament, particularly from Jesus, about fleeing from temptation as opposed to getting involved. The night manager dredges all that up in a really cool, exotic, well-performed, well-scripted TV series that we highly recommend. Okay. Well, the new episodes of The Night Manager air on SBS every Wednesday night at 8 30. It's available on SBS On Demand after that. and stars Tom Hiddleston, Hugh Laurie, Tom Hollander and Elizabeth Debicki. Rated MA15 plus for strong violence and a sex scene. So just be cautious. Okie dokie. You uh, posed the true or false to us before. Yeah, which of these is not a John Le Carnot? These great films, The Constant Gardener, Enigma, The Tailor of Panama, The Russia House. Which one wasn't John Le Carnot? Constant Gardener. No, that was John Le Carnot. Ah! Want to take a second bite? Enigma. Okay, there you go. Second time lucky. Enigma was, in fact, actually Richard Harris. It was written in 1995. Richard Harris, the actor? Richard Harris? No, no. Sorry, Robert Harris. Robert Harris. Robert Harris, uh, who also did Fatherland. Not to be confused with Richard Harris. There you go. Not now. Not to confuse you (laughs) and to completely explain what we're about to do on the big picture. Coming up real soon, Ewan McGregor plays, get this, Jesus and Satan in Last Days in the Desert. Just how controversial is that? Stick around and find out. Welcome back. The Get Down Season 2 is getting down right now on Netflix. Mark was a massive fan of the first season of The Get Down. Go to thebigpicturewebsite.com to check out his review. The Get Down, if you don't know, though, is Baz Luhrmann's love letter to the birth of hip-hop culture in New York City. Baz Luhrmann, famous Australian director behind this season of The Get Down. But for soundtrack this week, we thought, well, given The Get Down Season 2 is getting down on Netflix, we should boogie down with this.
Denmark. That is Best of My Love by the Emotions from 1977 that won a Grammy. And it was composed by members of Earth, Wind and Fire who teamed with the Emotions also for, I think, probably more famous song, Boogie Wonderland. Even though you only really hear talk of Earth, Wind & Fire when it comes to Boogie Wonderland. I don't know why the emotions don't get any praise, but they don't. Best of My Love is also found in a couple of other movies, which are very interesting, Mark. Either have Night or Three in the title. For example, (laughs) Boogie Nights, Night at the Museum 3, and Mission Impossible 3. So I wonder if if Fast and the Furious 3 has... Boogie. No, <laughs> I, re- I should have done my research yeah, better. I know I'm, I'm best of my love, but look, it definitely shows up also in the Get Down season two, which is getting down on Netflix right now, where you can hear loads of hippity hop and also loads of funk and boogie-ness, a lot like Best of My Love. What about the Lord of the Rings? Three. Easter Monday, the big picture hasn't said too much yet about a certain Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. High time for a Jesus movie, right? Correct. Well, Last Days in the Desert is a new movie out on Blu-ray and DVD starring Ewan McGregor as Jesus, who is wandering in the wilderness waiting to hear from his heavenly father. These things he expects of you. Do you think anyone will care? man of a thousand years from now. Have you found what you were looking for? No, but I'll stay as long as it takes. You think you're his only child? There are others. No, there is only me. There is only me. Okay, Mark, it is correct. Ewan McGregor is playing Jesus. He is wandering in the wilderness. This is a loose imagining based on the very famous incident in Jesus' life where he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. By Satan, and and in the gospel accounts of of these events, there's not too much detail that's that's given really. Um, and so, writer director Rodrigo Garcia decided, hey, I wonder what Jesus was actually doing out there. I'm going to depict a few days of him wandering in the desert. So that's what we get. Of those 40 days. That's right, of those 40 days. And this is towards the tail end of it. And so what we get is Ewan McGregor walking around in the desert as Jesus, or as Yeshua, which is the Hebrew um, name for Jesus. And he meets a family, if you can believe it, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, They're not not given any, they don't have any names. The father is played by Kieran Hines, and the son is played by Ty Sheridan. And so you get a bit of father-son um, thematics going on, particularly between Jesus and this father, Jesus and God, and this this father and son. But you also get your McGregor as Satan as well, showing up at various points, um, having conversations with Jesus, doing a bit of tempting, doing a bit of goading, doing a bit of what you'd expect Satan to be doing. Yeah. So rewind a little bit. McGregor plays Jesus and Satan. How does that work out? Yeah. You got that correct. McGregor playing Jesus and Satan. Um, well, on, on one level, it works out pretty technically well because you get you uh, and McGregor like through the great use of special effects, like sitting there talking to himself as these two different characters. Uh, he doesn't walk around with a pitchfork and horns, which is very helpful. He's dressed um, very, very similarly as Jesus and as Satan, this tempter out in the desert. So, um, look, actually on screen, it, it goes it goes all right. And it's actually not as controversial, not as provocative as that sounds. Like, what are they trying to suggest? Just the idea that you're being tempted by yourself or is that... Yeah, yeah. Look, um, we'll get onto this, I think, uh, the more we talk about Last Days in the Desert. But what writer-director Rodrigo Garcia um, has has done here, and, and by his own admission, I've read different interviews with him about the film, by his own admission, what he wanted to do is create a very human portrait of Jesus and actually imagine almost himself in the position of Jesus. What would it be like if I was in the wilderness and w- what would I imagine would have happened and so everything from the silence of God to not really knowing what Jesus' quote-unquote mission is to where he's headed to what might be coming his way, you get that. And then you also get this idea, I think, which is a, quite a human one, of almost like um, the two sides of us, the good and the bad. And so presented on screen, you get the two sides of Jesus, which could be Jesus and Satan. So he's not actually really saying that Satan is Jesus. Like the film's not presenting that. No. It's not going that far. It's not that controversial. Yeah. But it's definitely at very least suggesting that you could, you could walk away from the film thinking that if you wanted to. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I'm now going to beg the question how close it even stays to the biblical account. Not, not very close. And look... 
Mark, that's one of the things I was underwhelmed with about Last Days in the Desert. I, I went in figuring I was going to be a bit more offended or shocked or challenged by what happens. And, and often not much happens in Last Days in the Desert. Look, it looks great and, and you get loads of cool desert shots and some of the interactions between Jesus and this family or Jesus and Satan can be, you know, at, at moments there's some observations or insights about the human condition pretty much or a lot of complaining about the silence of god and where is god particularly in misery and suffering but sticking close to the biblical account not so much and again rodrigo garcia who's behind this film never intended to do that and he didn't want to make a biblical film probably because he saw movies like exodus and noah which were sometimes claiming yeah. to be biblical and they they weren't even close and then other ones like passion of the christ which were, were trying um, much harder to represent jesus more accurately instead here what garcia's really tried to do is basically give his own imagining of what he thinks it would have been like for Jesus in this situation, not plucked from the pages of the Bible. Is that your biggest objection to the film, that it's just basically more a man's reflection on the story than any telling of it? It is, it is. And that makes me sound like a super Christian, like I'm trying to go into bat and and say, oh, how dare Rodrigo Garcia You not... didn't quote this verse oh, at this I know, time. I, yeah. I can't believe you didn't go to the Gospels more closely, man, and, and you didn't take these words of dialogue, quote-unquote, from Jesus and Satan and put them in the movie. Uh, yes, that is my biggest criticism, but the main reason is because I think it underdoes, particularly Jesus, and also how rich you could have made this kind of movie. This this actually, to me, sounded like an idea begging to be made into a film. And it's I, a fascinating story. It is, and Bible. I think the reason that I know you haven't heard of this film and plenty of other people haven't, and it's gone straight to DVD and Blu-ray, even though it's been made the last couple of years, it's because it is a bit underwhelming in just how human it is. And I think Garcia, in trying to imagine what he thinks it would have been like for him as Jesus, pretty much, wandering around the desert, he's then done a disservice to what the Gospel accounts and the New Testament accounts and the Bible as a whole indicates about Jesus, both as God and as human. If he'd actually tried a bit harder to represent Jesus more as God, rather than just being totally distant from his Heavenly Father and not really knowing what's going on, I think if he tried to present both sides, which is really hard, which is really hard to do, but if he tried to do that, a richer, fuller portrait of Jesus being tempted by evil incarnate could have emerged, I think. Mm. This could have been a really, really great movie. Could have been a great place. It could have been. And it could have been very challenging for my Christian faith and, and plenty of other people's seeing these events depicted. Instead, by wandering so far away from what the Bible offers up as a freebie in mm. terms of background, and so you get this fuller portrait of Jesus, I think the last days of, in the desert just is a bit of an underwhelming disappointment. Okay, well, The Last Days in the Desert stars Ewan McGregor twice, as well as Ty Sheridan. It was released last Wednesday, April 12th, on Blu-ray and DVD, just in time for Easter. It's rated M for making it up. <laughs> well, not, not, okay, not quite. See what you did there. Sorry, yeah. M for mature themes and nudity. Yeah, and look, go. if you want to read... Nudity? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a little bit of nudity in here. There, there's a mother character in, oh, the, in okay, the film. Oh, okay, it's not and, like Jesus. I'm just no, thinking that would be taking it a tad too that, far. That would have been, that would have been. Uh, I also take it a tad too far if you go across to insights.uca.org.au. I wrote a fuller reviewer and a thinky thought piece thing about last days in the desert over there. Arguably better than the film by the sounds it, of it. Yeah, I, okay. I would allege I would allege so. In this Easter week, uh, it's a pretty great read. I think over at insights.uca.org.au, as well as some other Easter goodies from the Stations of the Cross exhibition that's going on around Sydney and Canberra, to some extended reflections on what all this Jesus business means. Mark, what else is coming up on the well, show, though? We've got a different sort of struggle against evil, the battle to prove the Holocaust in court in the film Denial, and our top five films you can only watch once. Welcome back. In a few minutes, I'm going to review a drama at cinemas called Denial, which is based on the true story of a British academic who denied the Holocaust ever happened. Well, in a few weeks, Centre for Public Christianity's Executive Director Simon Smart will be reporting from some of Nazi Germany's most notorious sites. For Press Record this week, Ben asked Simon why he was headed to Holocaust sites and what they have to do with the worst and best of Christianity. Simon, you're going off to Germany in a couple of weeks filming a documentary. Why are you going to some particular sites in Germany? Well, we're going to tell, among other things, the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as one of the 
let's be honest, few people within the German church who acted in a way that we can now be proud of in the sense that he's, he's a bit of a hero in the church as someone who stood up to the Nazi government right from the beginning. He really does contrast with the rest of the church, many of whom were jumping on board the Nazi kind of bandwagon. Were they? Do you think a lot of people know that now? Well, maybe not, but it's there's some pretty awful documents you can read about really enthusiastic support for the Nazis among the German evangelical church and among the Catholic church. So it's, it's really quite stunningly awful uh, when you think about that. There are people who stand out as distinct and different from it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of those. He is um, in some ways an unlikely hero. He's a kind of waistcoat-wearing, bespeckled, uh, aristocratic theologian. Not a superhero that we're used to seeing up on screens. But what were some of the things that he did? Well, he became famous for being part of the resistance to Nazism, but also uh, getting more serious about that part of the plot to assassinate Hitler, for which he was executed for right at the end of the war, just before the, 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 the Flossenburg camp was freed by the, the Allies. They hanged him in this sort of act of awfulness. But he's a, he's a hero because they're sort of a martyr to the cause. But right from the beginning, Ben, in 1933, he was so clear-sighted about what the church's role ought to be in the face of this awful oppression, of particularly of the Jewish people. What did he call for the church to do? Well, he was calling them to stand up and oppose the state. Now, one, he had this three-pronged approach to this. The church's role should be to hold the state to account for its actions when it is oppressing other people. Secondly, to support the victims of that oppression. But thirdly, and most controversially, if the state is bringing harm to people by not carrying out its proper functions, the church position not, should not just be to bind up the victims, but to shove a spoke in the wheel and to, to actually oppose the state. Now, for a Lutheran pastor, big on a, obedience to the state, this is a radical position. But it's all related to his clear-sightedness of the terrible oppression of Jewish people that he could see was coming and was going to get worse. He said that the church is only the church when it exists for others. And he said, we're not about you know mere waiting and looking. Christian behavior is all about action. And he took that all the way to this plot to assassinate Hitler and all the way to the gallows. Simon, this radical, controversial, unlikely hero, Lutheran pastor from the 30s in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is just one part of a bigger documentary that you and Centre for Public Christianity are part of. What is the documentary and what's the point of it? The documentary is called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. We're telling the story of the impact of Christianity and we're trying to, as the title suggests, be very open and honest about the terrible chapters of Christian history, people claiming to be followers of Christ acting in the most awful ways. And so we're going to tell those stories, but we're also going to tell the good story, of which we think there's plenty to say, and that right the way through, from the very beginning, there's a very powerful beautiful story of the impact of Christianity when Christians act in a way where they are obeying their their Lord rather than disobeying him. When you look at the actions of Christians where sometimes they are caring for people in incredibly sacrificial ways and putting themselves, uh, th their own interests uh, behind others and other times where they're not doing that and actually treating people awfully, we want to say which of those two things looks like authentic Christianity that's obeying the one that they claim to follow. And we think that becomes pretty clear when you look at the history. In the current day where lots of people think Christianity has just been terrible for the world, we want to say, look, there's been terrible chapters, but overall you have to look at this incredibly beautiful story that had an, an impact on our world in ways that sometimes we're unaware of, that are incredibly positive and are a massive contribution to the common good, without which we would be much the worse off. What if someone were to vehemently declare that the most painful event ever to shape your life simply did not occur? So imagine someone being told their mother didn't die or that their friend wasn't murdered. This is the position the survivors of Nazi death camps find themselves in each time they're confronted by those who deny the Holocaust. Denouncing those claims at the top of your voice would seem the most appropriate response, but... This month, a new film will suggest that in some cases, silence is the best response. Just like the Bible, the new film Denial says that the real hero is the one who's prepared to submit their own desires to what is best for others. 
What if we lose? Suddenly it becomes acceptable to say the Holocaust didn't happen? The word denier is particularly evil. Well, freedom of speech means you can say whatever you want. The phrase is a poison to which there is no antidote. What you can't do is lie and expect not to be accountable for it. There are no holes in that roof. Therefore, there never were any gas chambers. No holes, no holocaust. He wanted a catchy phrase. He's got it. Denial chronicles the day British Holocaust denier David Irving brought a libel case against Penguin Books and American author Deborah Lipstadt, claiming she had defamed him as a historian. How did she do that? Well, basically, she called him a bigot who distorted historical documents to support his belief that Adolf Hitler was not the author of the Nazis' final solution, what we've come to know as the Holocaust. Well, Timothy Spall presents Irving as a confident, media-savvy performer who knows how to get the most out of the headlines and Lipstadt is played by Rachel Weiss, a character who's a fighter, fully prepared to take on Irving in court. However, she's flawed when her legal team says to her, listen, what you've actually got to do to win this case is to be quiet, not speak out, but to stay quiet and let the facts take care of Irving. Before we even get started on denial, Mark, Hollywood's told and retold the Holocaust from many different perspectives. So is it even necessary to keep hearing this story up on screen? I feel like this is a question that really should be asked. So thanks for asking it. Basically because uh, people wonder, look, haven't we seen Holocaust films before? Uh, There are dozens of them out there. Uh, Why do we have to keep telling this story? But I think denial actually brings to light a historical struggle for ideas that many younger people aren't going to be aware of. The truth is that each new generation has to be reminded of the dark art of humanity. And Rachel Weiss's character makes it clear that to simply allow some ideas to exist like there wasn't a Holocaust is a travesty. There isn't room in this world for every opinion. But is denial taking more of a swipe at freedom of speech then, as opposed to calling it a Holocaust movie, quote-unquote, is it more a go at freedom of speech? It is, actually. And I think that's what makes denial one of those really interesting films. Because, you see, in this age... Freedom of speech is its own little god. You know, if if you've got the right, you know, the the ability to say something, well, you've got the right to say something. Uh, but in the 21st century, we kind of need our freedom of speech undercut a little. So we live in an age where truth is a matter of perspective, and so consequently, all opinions are given equal validity. But what the film wants to say is that freedom of speech isn't something that you can just count on. What you can't do is lie and expect not to be held accountable for the lie. Not all opinions are equal, says Lipstadt, and some things just happened just like the way they said they did. Slavery happened, the Black Death happened, the earth is round, the ice caps are melting, and Elvis is not alive. (laughs) And in that case, you've just basically got to accept that some things are true. History itself is not up for negotiation. What's denial like? What's the truth on denial, Mark? What was it like as a movie? I feel like the um, the film itself was reaching for a really important ideal and it's one of those cases where I think the scriptwriters went for the wrong character. Oh, well, as the focal character, yeah, you mean? Yeah, that's the weird thing. There are heaps of interesting characters in this film, like the solicitors who are really trying the case, or the, the barrister you know, who actually uh, runs the, the investigation, or even some of the paralegals who are working on it. But instead, they've settled on Deborah Lipstadt as the key character. You're chuckling had, when you say that. Well, because the weird thing is that um, even though they keep trying to... To make her the main character. She's not really the heroine of the film. I think it's one of those cases where um, the backers of the film have wanted to tell a Jewish story. It is a Jewish story because it's about a Holocaust trial, but at the same time, the people who actually carried this through to its conclusion, well, Rachel Weiss is not playing one of them, let's just put it that way. Um, one of the interesting things, though, about her is that she actually loves the idea that her name is Deborah, you yeah. know, Deborah Lipstadt, because yeah. Deborah's a deliverer in the Bible, right? That's, that's right, that's right. How much of a part does God actually play in denial? I wanted to ask you that, given we are talking about a, a Jewish woman, central character in this film, you've just mentioned her name she's named after an old testament biblical figure you would think more i mean this is the weird thing you think god would be in denial more you'd think so because we're talking ostensibly about an attack on one of the world's oldest religions 
Okay, and so you would think that the Judeo-Christian um, influence in the film itself, it's set in England, uh, would have more mention of God. Uh, but no, the case is, the only touch we get is the idea that Deborah uh, is a deliverer and is named after the prophetess Deborah. But I actually think that Deborah is walking in the footsteps of Jesus in one respect. Oh, yeah, how so? She, well, she's being told to be quiet for the sake of others in the end, to let the trial run its course uh, and to not keep stridently denying things or attacking things. Uh, likewise, Jesus, you know, his own trial is like a lamb before, you know, led to the slaughter, silent before the shearers, because in the end, if he's silent, others win. And saying this is a lesson that Deborah Lipstadt has to learn during her trial. If she's silent, she will win for others. But, you know, this is a really hard thing to swallow in an opinionated age. That's a very fitting link back to Easter Monday and the events of Easter. Um, before we move on with the rest of the show, quick question for you, Mark. Saying all of that, though, would you recommend people see Denial? I think you should watch it because you'd be stunned to realise that this happened in British court. I think there are better Holocaust films. We're going to talk about a few of them a little later in the show. Denial stars Rachel Weisz, Andrew Scott, Timothy Spall and Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. It's rated M for mature themes and it opened nationally last Thursday, April 13, probably at some art house cinemas somewhere near you. Coming up, we open the vault to discover the most moving Holocaust film ever made. And talking of disturbing but important topics, we bring you my top five films you can only watch once. And we're back. Before the break, Mark reviewed denial about a famous real-life case of one man denying the Holocaust ever happened. So for The Vault this week, there was no way we could go past discussing one of the most, if not the most, famous Holocaust movies ever, Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, and the impact it's had on so many viewers around the world. You know what's interesting about Schindler's List is that we have Jurassic Park to thank. What? what? We, w Jurassic Park? Well, it, you know... Um, Schindler's List was a real passion for Steven Spielberg for a long time, and he'd always gone to Universal and asked for it to be made. But they said the only way they would be able to be made is if he would first make Jurassic Park. So we have Universal Pictures, Wheelers and Dealers, really to thank because they got not only Jurassic Park to screen from director Steven Spielberg, but also multi-Academy Award-winning Schindler's List. Now, for anyone who hasn't seen Schindler's List, Russ, talk us through it. Okay, real quick, based on World War II, Oscar Schindler was a businessman who, um, who was actually working for the Germans, in essence, to be able to kind of build their war machine. And they had Jewish um, workers come in to work for free. And so, in essence, what happens then is that he ends up protecting them and saving their lives, showing their value to the Germans. Over uh, 1,200 um, Jews were actually saved in the long run. Now, in this movie that famously stars Liam Neeson and Ray Fiennes as one of the biggest incarnations of evil that you've ever seen on screen, out of this movie, Russ, so many things come out of it that stick in people's minds. But for you, what are some of the things that really stand out about Schindler's List? Uh, there's so many things that we could really talk about, but I think that the key element that we really have to focus on is that we should never forget that this sort of thing happened. And that even with all the things that happen in our newspapers nowadays, you know, you see all the different atrocities that occur around the world, that we can't forget that we still have a voice and that we really still need to be a part of the whole process of saying, no, we can't allow these things to happen anymore. But Schindler's List is a pretty traumatic experience as a viewer to sit through. What do you think about that, though? Like, I hear what you're saying about we shouldn't forget, but should we be as challenged as viewers? Oh, definitely. I think we should be challenged by them. But also, I think one of the, the, the key things that you really can take away, especially looking at the Oscar Schindler character, is he wasn't a perfect man, but yet his role, he had a role to play. It was in World War II, and yet he had a role to play and actually he was used to save people's lives and so in the end that so there really was a value and that show, showing that there really is no small part in this life that we all have a part to play and that we actually can do something about this to make sure that things like this don't occur again but nazi germany back in world war ii and this character of oscar schindler extreme case but are you saying that we can be inspired by oscar schindler and what he did in our day-to-day -day lives like we're not up against nazi germany we're not saving the lives of jews but you think this guy can inspire us in what we do Oh, definitely. I think that I think in everything that we do, I mean, all you have to do is just open up the newspaper every single day or maybe look at it online and be able to see that there are things occurring, unfortunately, in this world, in this lifetime, that there still continue to be those atrocities and that we can still be a part of, hopefully, to ensure that they don't occur again. Thank you to Russ Matthews, one of the uh, reviewers from Insights magazine that tends to crop up on our show on a regular basis. And one of our other big supporters who are always on our show is Eternity Newspaper or Eternity Digital News, if you like to get it that way. And one of the things we thought we might 
point to you this Easter is an article about uh, from Christian thinker and historian John Dixon. Easter, the reality beyond the the cliches. Uh, This is basically a list that John Dixon goes into in detail of a whole bunch of truths about what's behind the many Easter events and images we all know so well, but you might not know where they come from. So Easter, the reality beyond the cliches, check out the Eternity's digital website for that. Well, we've arrived at the top five, and once again, we're missing the most important thing. Sam, Sam. The, ever, the ever appreciative audience for the top five. But we're hoping that you'll like this segment too, just as much as he does. Of course, you're probably not dancing around the room in glee the way he normally does. But anyway, in the top five this week, there are great films out there that tackle topics we would never normally talk about. I mean, disturbing events in history that have to be watched and learned from, but can probably be never watched again. Have you seen one of those films? It's one of those one-watch films. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. Well, this is my list of one-watch films. Films you have to see that will have a profound effect on you. So profound, in fact, you'll probably never be able to watch them again. So, beginning at number five. Five. Since we've been talking about the Holocaust, I thought I'd start with one of those profound Holocaust films, The Pianist from 2002. Mm -hmm. It's that story of a Polish-Jewish musician who's struggling to survive the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto of World War II. It was directed by Roman Polanski and it starred Adrian Brody, basically brought Adrian Brody to fame as the pianist Wolesław Spilsman. Now, the dehumanizing of other human beings, the desperation to survive, the way that such suffering will never, ever leave you, even if the war ends, is just so potent in this film. I feel like, for me, it is the Holocaust on screen. It is one of those things that's very, very hard to ever forget. It won three Oscars and was nominated for another four. It's epic, it's harrowing, but it's worth the horror because of what it reveals about the dark heart of humanity. Did that affect you more than Schindler's List? Yeah, it did actually. Because, and I don't want to say this the wrong way. It's very difficult to talk about the Holocaust and not put a foot wrong. But um, Schindler's List had something of a profound and hopeful or happy ending. The pianist left you in a situation where you just went, this is awful and there are no two ways to look at it. You know, it's just one of those films where I feel like kids who are studying history, particularly World War II history, should watch it and then maybe get a sense of what a whole generation went through. Speaking of films that make huge uh, impacts on generations, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Morgan Freeman, Nigel Hawthorne, Anthony Hopkins, Demond Honsu, I always get his name wrong, Matthew McConaughey, Anna Paquin, Stellan Starsgard. I'm talking about... Armistad oh, from 1997. I've not, I've not actually seen that. Oh, now this is one it's of one those of the like lesser known movies in Steven Spielberg's yeah, back catalogue, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and it's one of those films that you sort of feel you know people really should get a sense of the slave trade. I feel like when you get when you see films about the slave trade, and Armistad is about the slave trade. I'll tell you a bit more in a second. You normally see films about um, uh, African Americans on plantations and the terrible ways that they are treated. Yeah. Roots, 12 years a slave, yes. things like that, okay? But Armistad is really about the slave trade, okay? so like the eight, business of it. Yeah, in 1839, the revolt of Mende captives aboard a Spanish-owned ship causes a major controversy in the United States because the ship is captured off Long Island and the courts now have to decide were these people fighting for their freedom or were they property Okay, and this is an actual court case that took place in 1839. It's amazing, but it brings to heart the whole idea of why it is so bad to trade in human beings. And and that is a very, very powerful thing. You'll, you'll leave a film like this asking yourself, how could anyone think these people were property? But if you're honest, you'll also realise that we turn people into property and we turn people into engines for our own delight all the time we put on expensive clothing and shoes and styles and things that are made in an inco- in inconsistent way. Why would you only watch that once? Uh, because, to be honest, there are some scenes in this as to what people are prepared to do to leave slavery behind, as to how damaging it is for the individuals involved, that, are, that just stick with you. You know, I, I don't know, there's some films that have one or two scenes that you never want to watch again. There's one particular scene in this one which I'll just about how a mother thinks it is better for her and her child not to live than to go through this that that reminds me time and time again of how horrible slavery is and it's not gruesome it's not even brutal it's just soul destroying three 
Have you seen American History X? I have, yes. Yeah. I reckon I've only watched that once. Yeah, exactly. There's one scene in that, talking of scenes that you can't forget. My I know, goodness. I know. 1998, American History X is a story about an angry young man who's transformed by his rage into a neo-Nazi skinhead. But he sees the error of his ways, and he's eventually released from prison because of a brutal murder he takes part in. Uh, in fact, he, he carries out. And he all he wants to do is prevent his younger brother from going down down the path that he went down. And that seems to be about the one thing he can't prevent. Uh, it is an incredible film starring Edward Norton. It's nominated for an Academy... He got nominated for an Academy Award for this for Best Actor. Um, I don't know what is more disturbing in this film. The almost casual way in which racism is delivered in the, in the suburbs uh, or um, the violence that that brings about or the prison system that fosters the same hatred but just in an institutional way um, or what happens happens in prisons or the tragedy of a young man realizing he can't change the mind of the one person he cares about the most so much challenging oh, content oh, in know. one fantastic but i'm with you one watch movie you should watch it edward norton is brilliant um so is edward furlong by the way his little brother is played by you might remember him from terminator 2 yes yeah and um but actually you know who takes the film for me elliot gould okay he's masterful as this soft-spoken reasonable voice of race hatred uh, and honestly, a that, reasonable voice of yeah, race hatred. Yeah, that's the thing. That voice, that soft-spoken race hatred, is still in politics today. You watch the film, you'll recognise it. You can hear it sometimes in Australian politics and in international politics. Just because somebody sounds soft-spoken and reasonable doesn't mean what they're saying isn't the most horrible lie. Two. Speaking of horrible lies, um, one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen, and I have not seen this again. I, I couldn't even own this. I'd be afraid that my kids would see it. And yet at the same time, I really do recommend it. Sleepers from 1996. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've only seen that once too. Yeah, directed by Barry Levinson, stars Robert De Niro, Kevin Bacon, Brad Pitt, Mini Driver, Dustin Hoffman. Like Huge it's, cast. It's loaded, okay. It's set in 1967's Hell's Kitchen. It's about a group in of New boys. New York City. Yeah, New York City. A group of boys are sent to a detention centre after a prank they pull goes really wrong and they're systematically abused and after 10 years, released back into society. Mm, mm. Now, it's hard to remember now just how incredible that film was when it came out because systemic abuse in um, uh, institutions wasn't something that was talked about, particularly for children. Now it's on almost every second media service that you actually see. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, sadly, sadly yes. so. But this powerfully portrays not the, just the horror of what happens to the kids, but of how it plays out in their lives, the different ways that people deal with it, and sadly, the, the different destructive effects that it has. It's truly harrowing sleepers. I can't watch it again. I can't forget it. It's also the first film I will recommend if somebody wants to understand the long-term effects of child abuse. Go watch Sleepers. And then one. Only watch it once. Mm. And speaking of once, um, look. Yeah, what can beat all of those? Yeah, to me, it was hard, okay? Because there was a category I wanted to take us to, which was basically the irresponsibility of a society and specifically to parents in the way they're supposed to raise children and the damage that can be done if society and parents as you know part of that village don't live up to their roles and i thought of films like the basketball diaries yeah that leonardo dicaprio film yeah about drug taking or even my own private idaho which had keanu reeves and river phoenix in another two very disturbing films about what happens when society forgets people and and doesn't live up to their responsibilities but the film for me that took it all together was Precious. Oh, right. Fair from enough. From 2009. Fair yeah. enough. It's directed by Lee Daniels. It's based on the novel by Sapphire. It stars, uh, oh, look, just Monique, uh, Paula Patton, Mariah Carey is in it. Uh, it's New York City's Harlem, circa 1987. It's a story about an overweight, abused, illiterate teen called Precious, who is pregnant with a second child, uh, is a victim of uh, sexual abuse in, mm. in a horrible situation. Mm. Uh, and she's invited to enroll in an alternative school in the hopes that her life can head in a new direction. But the truth is, can her past stop her from ever grasping a decent future? Mm. Particularly... Uh, the character of her mother. Yeah. The film. Oh, like you won't mother. forget that that performance by Monique is 
you like, will, etched yeah. on my mind. And yet at the same time, this is the sort of film that I want people to see, even though I expect you're only ever going to see this once. You're going to want to see it because you're going to understand that poverty is not just something people can get over. Uh, and the irresponsibility of parenting is not something people can just suck up. Um, we have a responsibility to society. We have to, and if we're going to find our way out of dark holes like that, like Precious, we're going to have to begin by deciding that this is not the life you want to have. Precious! You wanna stand up there and look down at me like you're a woman? You don't know what real women do. Real women sacrifice. Now smile about that, you fat bitch! Get down here! Can we talk about the abuse in your household? You know what I'm talking about. You sit there and judge me and you write them notes on your pad about who you think I am. Mark, that's a great but harrowing list, and you definitely filled the brief of one-watch movies from that top five. But one thing to listen out for more than once is the big picture, because we'll be back <laughs> again next week. And what will we be talking about, Mark? Cheer up. We're going to be talking about going in style, Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine stealing stuff. Yeah. And is TV comedy Atlanta the provocative laugh fest of 2017? Find out. Plus my favourite film of the year so far, their finest, a propaganda movie during World War II. You know, it's for laughs, but it's impressive. It's for laughs? Propaganda? You love it. Wow, we'll find out next week. And I will be Ben McKechn. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 